Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. And this time I'm joined by Callum Robertson, former Young Liberal co-chair and parliamentary candidate for the party. And also, if social media tells the truth, recent recipient of a blue Smurf sponge cake from the kids at the school at which he teaches. Now, I'm not up enough on young people's fashions and trends to decide whether a Smurf cake is a sign of praise or criticism, but I'll let you explain the cake to everyone, Callum. Oh, that, that, that's an interesting one. I was telling my students for a good two weeks that my birthday was coming up on my favourite cakes, Victoria Sponge. Be good listeners, they, they responded by getting me a Victoria Sponge. Turns out the McDonald's Happy Meals have the uh, Smurf toy with them at the moment. And one of them just decided to give me that because why not? <laughs> I'm not quite sure what the segue is from Smurfs to the state of British politics, but British politics is in such a chaotic state that I think almost anything could act as a segue. Um, I guess we sh- I should say we're recording this, what is it, eight or nine days after the mini budget. So who knows quite what will have further happened by the time people listen to the show. But What's your take on what has probably been the most dramatic collapse in a political party sort of standing in the eyes of the public uh, since the since political polling began? You could sort of argue a little bit about maybe Neville Chamberlain in 1940, perhaps. But if Neville Chamberlain is your defence, you're clearly it's a bad situation. So, yeah, what's your take on stuff? I mean, I think, first of all, it's, it's long overdue. We, we've had a set about... I think if, if you separate out sort of like Theresa May's Conservatives from the Trust Johnson one, once you get this idea that actually for the past four, four or five years, they've just been utterly corrupt. Three, three or four years, sorry, utterly corrupt. They self-interested parties when people were dying. I mean, it, it's this idea that actually the rules, I mean, in some cases, literally, quite literally don't apply to them. And I think this latest budget is sort of the sort of the tip x of that uh, the, tip x, uh, the tip of that point yeah because i guess i mean although it's weird to think positive thoughts of theresa may you know but although i think she got some things really badly wrong such as the her whole approach to brexit and her set of red lines that were just impossible to deliver on that at least was substantive policy and when it came to the crunch after say the 2017 election disaster and you know, clearly her team had failed badly and was very unpopular. She took the difficult decision, albeit forced by circumstances, of axing her two closest aides in a way that is in such contrast to how Boris Johnson tried to, you know, spent so much capital on keep, trying to keep hold of Dominic Cummings that, that at least in terms of sort of personal standards, I think Theresa May does genuinely stand up very well to certainly Absolutely. Boris Johnson. And also it appears Liz Truss as well, you know, not appointing an ethics advisor, having having more than one special advisor, including her chief of staff, employed, well, employed, I say, but not really employed on a slightly odd secondment basis rather than employed in the normal fashion special advisor. You know, it's who who would have thought in in the depths of 2019 that we'd end up looking back wistfully at Theresa May, hey? Exactly. I, I think p- people look at someone like Theresa May and they go, I completely disagree with her, but I think she comes to politics from a place of relative honesty. Whereas I, I just don't think the same can be said for, for Liz Trust and Boris Johnson. So I think to come back to the original point, long overdue, but also, and I think really importantly, it provides an opportunity for a positive alternative. 
for people to actually have a route out of the mess that we're currently in as a society. Yeah, and obviously you and I would both say the Liberal Democrats very much that provide uh, that opportunity. But maybe just before we come on to the Lib Dem aspect, I guess it's worth thinking about Labour as well, because I guess Labour's had, by most standards, a pretty successful party conference, you know, well received in the media, seems to have gone down very well internally, poll ratings you know, seem to be moving in the right direction, although then, of course, the mini budget very quickly overtook events. But I was struck how what Keir Starmer this year was saying the Labour Party is all about had very little overlap with what he was saying last year. Yeah, he does seem to be a bit in that mode of almost like Ed Miliband, of just changing what he's saying a bit too frequently, when in fact, particularly if you're not in government, you just have to say the same thing again and again and again and wrap it up in you know, new ways of saying it so it doesn't get too boring for everyone. But you really have to hammer away at the same point. But but yeah, what was your take on the, the Labour conference? So I think you almost hit the nail on the head. I think where I potentially disagree is that Keir Starmer has, over sort of the last couple of years, sort of from the internal politics of Labour, managed to wrest control from the left and sort of place it firmly back in the hands of the centre. Now you see a couple of exceptions to that. The Newcastle leader being randomly selected in his council ward and costing them place in the NEC. Now that's a bit of pointless trivia for you, but that, that sort of thing are... knowledge there. Shock, shock, shock losses, but like broadly speaking, NEC elections he's done really well in. He's done really well in terms of parliamentary selections. You're not seeing a lot of proper left wingers selected. They seem to be actually really sensibly backing a lot of local, like local candidate selections in these places. I think I read Michael Crick analyzing that the first 30 selections and like 28 had been people with genuine local links. So they're sort of they're learning from mistakes there. And now he has managed to sort of gain control of his party back, sort of almost ironically take back control sort of message. He has he has the breathing room to actually set out his vision now. So I'm probably sounding a bit like a Labour spinner at the moment, but I think he also managed to use the conference to do that quite effectively and come across as prime ministerial. He, lo- he looks during the Labour conference as prime minister in waiting. I think that provides a real challenge for us as a party. Yeah, although I guess the counterpoint to that is how different is his policy prospectus from Jeremy Corbyn's? I think that is still genuinely very unclear, other than in two, albeit in very important respects, clearly a very different approach on anti-Semitism and clearly a very different approach to Russia, which, particularly because of the invasion of Ukraine, is actually, you know, is a very, you know, very substantive issue as well alongside anti-Semitism. But beyond that, you know, I think even for people who follow Labour politics much more closely than average, like say you or me, especially Mm. with your knowledge of Newcastle ward selection shenanigans, I'm not sure it is clear, you know, that fairly basic question of what's his policy direction. And perhaps that won't matter. You know, if the government is Mm. sufficiently unpopular, perhaps that won't matter. But it seems to me there is a risk there is a risk for Labour that it will turn out like Kinnock or Miliband. And actually, although you have big leads at some points, it is that that failure to define the positive successfully in the way that Blair, Wilson and Attlee did might yet might yet hit them. I think also it probably helps and it, it probably leans into it. I mean, he's an Oxford-educated barrister with an I heard, who's the former director of public prosecutions. That plays very nicely with 
sort of a lot of swing voters because mm. the Tories can't credibly hit with soft on crime and people can't say he's uneducated like they brought out Jeremy Corbyn's A-level grades against him. No one can reasonably hold stuff like that against him. So I think he's he's got that stylistic edge to him in a way that Corbyn doesn't. But again, actually, I think you, you're absolutely right on the substance or lack thereof. There is very little. And in terms, even in terms of energy policy, for example, often parroting, parroting Arlen will be, again, probably slightly more media attention for them. But he's outright, outright theft here in some cases of our, of our, of our political lines. But yeah. Yeah, indeed. Some... I guess there's a, a good proportion of his most successful political lines have been ones that have Dems have been trailing previously. So we are continuing our party in, in the role as a party of being the source of good ideas for others to steal. Um, but I guess the thing that definitely is very different about Starmer, isn't it, is that the idea of him as prime minister is a lot less scary to Liberal Democrats and Liberal Democrat voters than the idea of Jeremy Corbyn. And that was a real problem for us in 2019 of that, you know, do you want... Yeah, if it's a choice between Corbyn or Johnson as prime minister, that was a question we all would rather have ducked. And hence, yeah. for all of the problems, as it turned out, but, you know, hence the use of messaging like Joe Swinson saying, I'm, I'm standing here to be your prime minister. Obviously, that didn't work. But given the alternatives, you can see at least why that message was the one, you know, the one that was used. And I think, you know, Starmer is just not threatening in the way that Corbyn was at all from a from a Lib Dem and indeed a broader perspective is he and I think mm. that sense of you know what Ed Davey has been saying about our job at the next election is to help remove the Tories from power that I think is feels like quite a comfortable message in a way that in 2019 that would have then prompted a whole set of questions about yeah but Corbyn yeah absolutely and there's a large segment of society that vote Jeremy Corbyn is as awful as Boris Johnson mm. and to a large extent, for completely legitimate reasons. I mean, some of the stuff around anti-Semitism horrified voters, both with Jewish backgrounds and without. Because it's that, it's that complete lack of decency there, which I think was really genuinely concerning to voters. And people can go, people do like to just go, yeah, yeah, but what if we'd elected Jeremy Corbyn? It would have been fantastic. It's actually like, you're at that stage, people are ignoring the genuinely very real problems that a Corbyn premiership would have posed. Yeah. And also, I think he didn't give the impression of really particularly wanting to be Prime Minister of Britain. And I mean that, I think, in two respects. One was a lot of the week-in, week-out you know, incompetence of things like his press operation it doesn't cut through to voters in itself, but added to a general impression of this isn't somebody who really wants the job. And then also his huge reluctance over things like the display of the Union Jack, singing of the national anthem, etc. Meant it was not just that he didn't seem like he really wanted to be prime minister. He didn't seem like he really wanted to be leader of Britain. You know that there's not a particular affection for the country mm. that comes through. And you know, he, I mean, I thought it was a a smart and in a way brave move of Keir Starmer to have the singing of the national anthem opening Labour conference. I mean, imagine trying to suggest that to Lib Dem conference committee for that. But it ac- absolutely worked for him. But you know, even that. You know, there was there were quotes from Jeremy Corbyn saying about how, you know, he thought it wasn't the right thing to do. You know, he just, you don't have to be nationalistic at all to want a leader of our country who you think at least quite likes our country. And Corbyn, I think, gave off very mixed messages on that, didn't he? Absolutely, yeah. That sort of, it's almost that self-loathing when it comes to Corbyn of Britain. And it's actually, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. When you aspire to lead the country, you've got to at least, pretend to give a damn about the country. 
And yeah, I don't quite a low he, bar, quite a low bar. But it um, is a low bar. Somehow he managed not to meet it. So let's think about the Lib Dems then, because as you said, I think rightly, the state of politics definitely gives an opening and an opportunity for the Lib Dems. What do you think we need to get right to seize that opportunity? So I think we need to build more of a core vote of people who are going to stick with this come hell or high water. Listeners um, at this point will be thinking, ah, oh, now we know why Mark had Callum on this time. <laughs> Correct. I maybe slightly disagree with the demographic, but I, I agree on the broad principle. It's it's that that core vote is actually really important because I mean you you've seen the sort of the post Labour conference polling. I mean they've hit what 55 percent in some polls, and about five or six percent of that does seem to have come from us. That lack of durability in our vote is going to hold us back because if you plug it into any electoral calculus where you've got a not very active candidate for the Lib Dems standing in a seat where we're notionally second. I don't know, take Saffron Walden, for example, where we came second, I think, about 19% last time. We're a very, very distant third in that in that scenario where Labour's polling even, even 40% plus, and we're polling around 7%. Because we, have, we won't have built up a solid second place in any of those seats. So I think it'll be really, I think our challenge isn't just winning those sort of 30 target seats. It's it's winning though. It's winning very solid second places in the next fifty, where Labour haven't leapfrogged us, and it doesn't completely shoot our message in the foot for the next time. Yeah, because I, mean, I think that's our big challenge. Yeah, because there there is a weird respect in which I think if you're in a seat where we've got a really good organisation and we were close last time, or we won it and we're trying to hold it, this seeing the willingness of people to switch from Tory to Labour means there's a lot of work to be done to get that switch to be from Tory to Lib Dem, but it shows the willingness of Tories to plump for another option to defeat you know, this trust. And that, in that sense, you still think, well, actually, that's quite a promising sign for where there's a really good Lib, Lib Dem campaign organisation. The risk, as you say, is in those places that are up and coming, that they've not sort of yet reached that level of intensity of campaigning to be able to take that opportunity and instead therefore get swamped by the national trend and so we do really well where we're strongest but we don't spread our strength sufficiently into the next wave of seats beyond that if we're not waking, making those wins at local level where we're not getting those delivery networks up but we're not making it normal for people to gain to vote liberal democrat where it feels normal to have a liberal democrat representative if you're not making those gains yeah and i think the May local elections were quite promising in that respect, that there were definitely places where we're doing that. And that's what makes next May local elections, because it's the huge set of elections where we had those amazing gains, over 700 net gains back in what will then what will be four years ago by the time we get to next May, that there's a real opportunity to do that. But you're right, it's not happening everywhere yet. On the flip side is, I think there are some really in some ways, improbable areas, one might almost say, where there has been really impressive growth as well. I think you know, some of Labour-facing areas in Northern England, where we were mm. making net gains this May, or indeed, as we're recording this just a couple of days ago, there were, we had a council candidate in a by-election who finished fourth, and you might think, well, so what? Except that that was our first candidate of any sort in that council area for a good many years, and it, that's you know, a very much traditional Leave voting area. So you think, again, that huge credit to the candidate and the local team and and I believe the regional sort of development officer was very instrumental in supporting that as well but that there are definitely bit you know grass signs of grassroots growth all over the place but what I think is perhaps the biggest risk for us is in places where nominally 
previous election results say we should have a good chance and people fool themselves into thinking that matters more than actually how many deliverers have you really recruited this year? Like almost a case study of success is actually Cambridgeshire. Mm. Take the seat of South Cambridge where we've got Pim Haling, Kraken Candor, a lo- lovely person as well, actually, which always helps to South Cambridge. Well, but I, it, that's really important. My, my little rule of thumb for judging the prospect somewhere is actually nothing to do with any of the formal KPIs or election results or whatever. I find the best rule of thumb is if you bump into the key figures from that place at, say, a Lib Dem conference, are they nice people to talk to? Are they, you know, are they the sort of people who will give you a cheery two-minute quick conversation while you're queuing for the coffee? Or are they the sort of people who immediately will be straight in with about how something is awful or about how something is dreadful or and be really dandy? Yes. And often, you know, when people are straight into the negative mindset, absolutely, the points they raise are often really good and important ones, no doubt about it. But you really can tell that the cheerful people are generally the most successful people because that's what you need. They're the ones who actually want to do it. (laughs) Yeah, but Southampton, the count covers... As a digression, you know what this means would be the most useful but most awful cringe-inducing training session that should be put on for candidates. How to do small talk in the queue for coffee. That would be hilarious to watch. It's Imagine final. a practical session you could have at the end of that training session. You could send the trainees out to the local coffee queue and see how they perform. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so yeah, so on, on the so it it covers almost three new parliamentary mm. constituencies, yeah. as it were. So East Cams as well, then is which is a new constituency being created of East Cambridgeshire district and and part of South Cams. And St Neots, because South Cams has been in a lot of development, it's a vastly growing almost through parliamentary district but they're building up as a as a team across cambridgeshire they're not just being insular and they're building up with genuinely liberal messaging not just sort of localist stuff and you've got everyone working together and pulling in the same direction there and i think that's how that's how we take our decent seconds maintain those decent seconds whilst winning the seat and then i mean realistically within 10 years, we could have four out of eight seats in Cambridgeshire post-boundary review because Cambridge could come back sort of five years into a Labour government. So with that in mind, I think that sort of team mentality that certainly Pip Pippa, Bridget Smith are both building in, in Cambridgeshire and Ian Solomon as well, is just it's heartwarming to see. It's absolutely heartwarming to see. And that, that's how we build back on a national level in genuinely places that align with our values as well because those are the core votes of places that would put poll higher for us in terms of they agree with us and what we're saying naturally, but also, crucially, we've got good, large, dedicated teams who want to win and realise the need to win as well. Yeah, And also, I think it's particularly helpful with the way that the footprint for, say, local and regional media, or indeed just people, you know, who work together and might chat about politics a little bit at election time, during a coffee break at work, you know, we'll live in, not necessarily all live in the same ward or the same constituency, but might generally live in the same area. I think having those clumps of success is, you know, it, it's not been a coincidence that, you know, we've had clumps of success like in Southwest London, like we've had previously in better days, clumps of success in Somerset, in Devon and Cornwall, in parts of Scotland, you know. That, um, pairs of growth. Exactly. And that I think that is a big part of, sort of sustained success is is beginning to make politics on a broader local scale a sort of sustainable two-party contest in which we're one of the one of the two parties and things mm. like local 
newspaper. It, I, I, I've never seen any rigorous analysis of this, but I sus- strongly suspect there is a genuine strong relationship between places with higher local uh, media consumption. So genuine local newspaper that actually does local news and has an audience still for it. And of them success, because that allows you to do something different in that area that breaks away from the overall national trend, doesn't it? I think the, the other thing that is genuinely fascinating, and it almost it's our number one challenge, sort of beyond electioneering, is thinking about the long term and thinking about actually, let's just not look at 2024 or 2025 or whenever the toys are going to set the next election, but looking at actually what's happening in 2028 what's happening in 2032 how we what's our long-term planning like financially and and sort of practically because although the polls are saying labor majority of what 50 odd seats you know some of them are saying 200 odd seats but obviously that's that's not going to happen we we saw polls like that in the early 80s with us mm. which then sort of usurped by the Falklands we saw it in 1992 uh when labor then went and lost we could end up in hung parliament territory and we, we, we can't let that get away from us in terms of planning. So, because we, I think, regardless, we'll have a fair few new MPs, whether it be old MPs to stood down or newly elected MPs. And a lot of them may end up as first-term cabinet members of the such like in the situation went into coalition. I think we, we do need to sort of prep for that as well, because we, we I think we run the risk of another 2010 not in terms of bad policy or anything like that, but in terms of actually being prepared for government. Yeah, and and I think one of the lessons amongst the many, many lessons from 2010 to 15 is that it, in a way it sort of made sense to particularly focus on government ministerial posts in the immediate aftermath of the 2010 election, partly because of coalition being a very new thing in British politics and trying to show that you know, a multi-party government doesn't mean instability compared to single-party governments, and partly because of the state of the economy at the time, and so on. I think events subsequently, and indeed the experience of coalition, means that there there will be nothing like that. Those same pressures after the next election, if there's a hung parliament, and actually, what really matters is not what ministerial posts yeah. you know is the party interested in, but what really matters is what policies. You know, what difference can the party make to how the country is governed? And that matters far more. And I think, I mean, we'll obviously, you know, see in due course what the party's position is on that. But I, I think the emphasis will be much more on, on sort of policies than posts. And, you know, I can easily envisage a hung parliament, which results in significant Lib Dem policy success and no Lib Dem ever, you know, setting their foot over over the doorway into a ministerial building. Potentially, yeah. I think, yeah, I think it, it's just one of those things where, we need to be careful to keep it in the back of our mind as going, realistically, that's a tangible outcome. And if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. I think it's well, all well, things we've been poor at doing as a party, yeah. I think. And particularly given how the general outcome of a hung parliament is bad news for us as a party, I think there's something where collectively we don't spend enough time worrying about that pattern, that we tend to view a hung parliament as the sort of promised land of hooray, hung parliament means political influence, which is true in many ways, but it's a promised land that has repeatedly turned sour, not just in the dramatic way of 2010 to 15, but in less dramatic, but similarly, you know, similarly not happy ending stories about the late 1970s or in the 1960s. Yeah, there's, there's, there's 17 to 19 being a key one. Consistent sequence of, you know, like in six, 
in, in the mid-60s, although it wasn't a hung parliament, it was a small Labour majority. And again, you know, that that was a relatively short-lived parliament in which the Liberals didn't really make any impact. And at the next election, you know, it was it was a clear government majority. It wasn't like it was the opening towards further further political power. And I think one of the lessons from those previous examples is there's never really been a really sort of good, powerful, distinctive policy game. That if you think about 2010 to 15, we put our political and sort of the, the government's literal capital into securing the £10,000 income tax allowance. That was the big headline thing, which was a good policy and all of that. But fundamentally, the Lib Dems were in government to make the Tories cut taxes more. Just that didn't sound like a great achievement. You know, that wasn't. And similarly, if you, the late 1970s, I mean, if you read David Steele's memoirs, he talks up about getting things like some changes made to enable more profit related pay for staff. And you sort of think, yeah, nice in its own way, but quite marginal, really. And it's content and thing, good government. It's not it's not distinctively liberal. Yeah. And the things that we do rightly, you know, look back on with pride in terms of having achieved like legalisation of same sex marriage really important, makes a real difference to many people's lives, but also relatively low down the political agenda for most people. If you were to say, you know, vote for us because we're the party that achieves things like that, most people's reaction will be, yeah, but what about the economy or what about the NHS? Mm. Or well, yeah, quite rightly, there's a lot of issues that people would rate as being more important, even though, even while recognising that that was a, a welcome change. And I think that's our real challenge as a party is to say, well, okay, Let's learn from those lessons of the past. Let's be really clear about what the policy outcome is that you really feel like you only got because there were Lib Dems there. In a way, the £10,000 income tax thing technically was true, that it only happened because the Lib Dems were in government, but it didn't really feel to voters like, oh, it's because there are Lib Dems that my income tax is being cut. You know, that felt like something you would expect the Tories to have done in some form anyway. There's a there's a cruel irony because one of the big big hits the government's taken in the last week or two is, yeah, they've frozen the personal tax allowance mm. and for giving tax cuts to millionaires. Like, well, yeah, we, we were the ones who made it normal to raise the personal tax allowance. It, it was it's it's Lib Dems and government that did that. But we are, I think, as you rightly point out, often squeezed out out the image because there's nothing that you distinctively go. Yeah, that that was the Lib Dems. That was Ed's achievement, or that was Lynn Featherstone's achievement. There, there's nothing you just go. Actually, that's what the Lib Dems do. And I think part of that, you know, will be should be electoral reform for the House of Commons, definitely. But I think it would be wise for us to acknowledge that again, a bit like legalising same-sex marriage, although a really important issue and absolutely right, it's not in itself in, enough to get that many people voting for us. Definitely, there'll be some people who would be motivated to vote for us on that basis, and probably also some would-be Labour tactical voters who might feel more comfortable voting for us, you know, because they want electoral reform, they see Keir Starmer being lukewarm on it, so it makes it easier to get them to vote tactically for us. But fundamentally, it's not quite enough on its own, is it? But yeah, and I agree, and I think actually, in terms of electoral reform, I think, again, it comes into that theme of planning for the long term. We get electoral reform through how much of our vote is based on tactical voting. If we introduce, I don't know, a 5% threshold and in a bad year, we'd be facing FTP-style wipeout from Parliament. I mean, that would be awful, but it'd be potentially a real scenario because it would force us to break from our localist sort of ideas that have given us a lot of councillors, but not necessarily 
uh, given us a core vote of people who can sit, vote for us for consistent reasons. Mm. Because sort of being a hardworking, nice guy doesn't actually get you very far when you've got to make tough decisions in government, but it does sort of in, on the local council. And I think that's where we really need to sort of think strategically long term, because again, now more than ever, even more than 90, pre-97, we've got a Labour Party that is at least notionally committed to proportional representation. Now, I'm not convinced that will appear in a Labour manifesto, but on the off chance it does, it'll be our first time to seriously get, since 2011, to seriously try to get electoral reform through. And we need to, again, think about the long term of what does that mean for us in politics? What does that mean for the Lib position in politics? Yeah, and I, I think this is where it's in a way quite helpful from a Lib Dem perspective that Keir Starmer, although he's very much your archetypal metropolitan liberal in many ways, is not actually leading the Labour Party in a particularly liberal direction, you know, and that on a range of issues that he's leaving quite a lot of political space for the Lib Dems. But I think our challenge is to make that sense of liberalism into something that is a broader message than a sort of niche collection of talking about things like civil liberties, because again, important though they are, they're not quite where the mainstream voters' concerns are. And, you know, we need to start with, and I, 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 in a sense, it's, a, you know, there are many reasons why it's a real shame that our autumn conference was cancelled, you know, it had to be cancelled. But one of the things we therefore missed out on was Ed's sort of autumn conference speech, which I think, you know, would have would have given us a really nice sort of evolution of that fair deal messaging that was in his spring conference speech and in the pre-manifesto document that also would have been debated at a conference and that emphasis on what a liberal idea of fairness is. And I always think mm. there's a really interesting contrast with how, you know, although in many ways our idea of fairness and Labour's idea of fairness has some significant overlap, the speed with which people in the Labour Party like to slip into demonising particular parts of society, you know, that sort of dividing people into basically the worthy and the rich, and there's a whole load of people who are to be disliked, to be despised, to you know not be the people that the government should be worried about because they're rich. There's a there's 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 a although when it comes to actual specific policies, the gap between Labour and Lib Dem might on some of these issues be quite narrow. In terms of basic outlook, you know what's different in many ways about us is we just look at that desire to categorise society into the worthy and the unworthy and recoil. And that's a very, you know, it's a very different attitude from a liberal. I think, I, th I think that is sort of spot on because you've got that idea of the West Wing being a massive fan. I think Stephen Robinson's to blame for that one. Of when Sam Seaborn's having an argument with a, a congressman and just going, "Look, every time your congressman goes up and shouts tax the rich, I hide under a table because they pay sort of twenty-seven times more than the average earner." Than, than, and it was sort of this point of like, let's not call them names whilst we're doing it because ultimately. If you are asking people to contribute more, the least you can do is do it politely and not demonise people because A, it's really bad. It's just poor form. It's just a bit rude. But also B, like when you create an us and them view in society, it breeds quite an unhealthy politics yeah. where you're sort of like the idea of the class war or othering communities. It, it leads to a situation where I think people then think it's legitimate to attack personally rather than on policy. And we've seen the it danger also, of that in the last sort of 10, 15 years. It also leads to, I think, a real inconsistency, because I think I, I think what you've said just maybe slightly betrayed your liberal reform <laughs> leanings. I would, phrase it slightly different, I would phrase it slightly differently from the way you did. But, but I think one example I would pick on is there are 
quite a few people in sort of public service roles who are on salaries that are over £100,000. And if they are genuinely doing a really good job, and it's genuinely a role that is really hard to recruit for, I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, you know, it, if you think about, say, head of children's services at a local council, which is often a relatively well-paid role, doing that badly causes such havoc and tragedy that I'm absolutely happy with the idea of that job being a well-paid role if that's what's needed to genuinely get really good people in the place. Because of all the benefits for people living some of the toughest circumstances in life, you know, who are helped by having a really good person. That, but, so I'm absolutely happy with that. But if you have this sort of demonising the rich, well, you've got to, I mean, somebody on 100k plus, I mean, yes, they, they count as rich, unless you have a really absurd. And so you end up demonising things like brilliant public servants who are doing an amazing job. You end up in this really twist. Oh, well, they're, they're not the sort of rich people. I mean, yeah. And you end up really in a sort of a sense of, as you say, division and 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 wanting to pick on people because there's something about them that you don't like now there are definitely some very rich people who I'm quite happy to very much not to be fans of but I think the fundamental Lib Dem approach is about trying to give everyone opportunity and trying to have a sense of fairness and you say yeah okay if you're doing really well that doesn't mean that we hate you it means that we think you should, in return, have to pay a reasonable rate of tax, etc. I guess the other example with Labour, which I think, again, shows a nice difference in instinct, is that I've never kissed a Tory badge or T-shirt. Yeah. But I, I mean, I'm sure there's a Lib Dem somewhere who has worn such a badge or T-shirt just because you know, Lib Dems like being contrarian and we're so varied. But fundamentally, that is so not a Lib Dem outlook. Hmm. No, I completely agree. It's like my my old living in London. You sort of, if you if you're sort of millennial like me, you have you basically have to share a flat. But my old flatmates, one of them guy, he was lived there. The other one, he's Tory staffer because we're friends from university. Not because we agree politically. I mean, God knows we have some arguments over dinner. But like on the first and foremost, he's a nice person. And if you can separate that from the politics, I think you're you're onto a winner there. I, I think you make a really interesting point though, also about the sort of the head of children's services at local authority. Also with London waiting, any head teacher of a secondary mm. school in London will yeah. be on over a hundred thousand pounds just because the way the salary scales work. NHS workers, we're talking senior doctors, orthopedic surgeons, etc. Academics, people like cancer researchers if they're a professor at university. Keir Starmer, when he was the director of public prosecutions, would have been on the salary that his front bench consistently demonised people for. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone, at least for me, would, would say any of these people don't deserve it. I mean, God knows my head teacher works ridiculous hours to provide a great education for the students in my school i think that's really really important as a teacher i'm very happy for her to be on that sort of salary and because they because they do that job and yeah they do and and, and I, I think that at least for me the point at which it becomes offensive is when is if you feel they're getting paid that regardless of whether or not they're any good at it so mm. i i am yeah anyone who follows me on twitter will know my travail for thames water and all the many water leaks that i report to them how they don't always report you know exactly deal with them well now I, and i do think the thames water ceo salary is really hard to justify but that's because on the level of salary that the ceo is on they should be one of the most brilliant ceos well pro- actually in the world not just in the country you know they should be one of the most amazing good people and everything i can see from how thames water deals with water leaks that i report to them including when dealing with the ceo's team 
is mm. that they're not. Now, maybe they are, and actually they inherited such a complete ramshackle organisation that all of the failures I see are still somehow a huge improvement. So, you know, I'll, I'll give a little caveat that maybe there is another side to the story. But certainly from what I see, you sort of think, this doesn't feel like an organisation run by one of the most brilliant people that we've got. And therefore, that's what's the problem. But to come back to what we were saying earlier, some of that really needs to require a focus on how do you get the very best of people? And that's not only a matter of pay, because you know, what makes a head teacher a brilliant head teacher? There's a whole set of factors that go mm. into that, particularly around the training and support that's available for them as well, isn't it? But, but I don't think we get we have nearly enough emphasis on how do you get you know, the very best of head teachers or the very best of, you know, of, of managers in other key areas of, of public service. And there's some really interesting work going on, definitely, particularly around yeah. trying to improve career progression, sort of not career progression, sorry, but ongoing sort of career yeah. training and personal development in the teaching profession, isn't there? There is. I mean, the, the MPQs, the National Professional Qualifications, etc., visionary example of actually making sure that people are ready for the jobs when they take them on. There's a really interesting sort of segue back to sort of the Lib Dems here. Is a lot of these practices that we rightly loud as being quite good, I think often as an organisation we we sometimes struggle with. Because one of the things that is responsible for massive turnover of teachers is how we treat our, uh, how teachers are treated by both parents and senior leadership. And if mm. you've got good treatment of a, a good treatment of people by senior leadership and by parents, you've got a healthy relationship, people tend to stay longer. I think the same, same very much does apply in the Lib Dems and how we actually, if we want the best from our staff, our volunteers, I think our offer as a party needs to be more coherent and, and sort of longer term vision as well. And actually going, this is your volunteering path to doing what you want to do in the party, or this is your staff development path to making sure that if you want to leave in five years time and become a charity CEO, then we will equip you to do it. Uh, there's a philosophy with the head teacher I worked for. It's Carr. He uh, says, our aspiration here is to train you so well that you can leave and do whatever job you want to do, but treat you so well that you don't, which I think is the perfect philosophy. And I think that's one of the things we could potentially take from both public sector and a lot of the private sector in terms of actually how we operate as a party. Oh. Yeah, because I think party salaries are always going to be quite challenging in that respect. And in particular being at the moment, at least, a relatively small organisation, the potential for progression from one role to another is also always going to be quite limited. Mm. And therefore, other ways of motivating and retaining people are a really important part of that. And, um, you know, and, and some of that can be the fun of the job. Some of it can be the interest. There is an upside to a small organisation, which is you can often get to do and learn much more than if you're part of a much larger mm. organisation. But part of that, ha you know, has to be about feeling valued and being treated well and I think it's one of the you know unfortunate sort of parts of far too many of our general election reviews in the past you know is party staff talking about how they feel they've been treated not just how they feel they've been treated how they yeah. actually have been treated you know as well by by others and I think it's you know it, it's always easy to sort of feel that say people at HQ are somehow a slightly sort of you know there's a slightly disembodied and therefore you know to to forget that you might you're at, you know when you're sending that angry email you're you are actually sending it to a real human being who is going to read it and but I do think we've got collectively as a party a lot better at that in many ways in the last few years but there's definitely still still a work in in progress there and I think one of the hopefully I think you know sort of positive elements of that is actually having moved to you know the new HQ that we're in 
in in in London now in Victoria Square is such a nicer office. You know, it was the offices we were in in Great George Street were just really quite unpleasant, and I think yeah, people, it, was, it it didn't make it feel like homely or like you wanted to be there. No, and just you know the leak in the roof and the toilets and all of that sort of stuff that seemed to sort of go on for forever. It was. Yeah, the landlord was basically running down the building, you know, I, I, I think with a, with a view to doing other things with it subsequently. So, but it felt like, yeah, it felt like a, yeah, an off offices for people who, who were, you know, being expected to put up with bad conditions rather than offices to help bring out the very best of people. And I think the new offices, as well as being cheaper, it's a wonderful combination, are a lot, a lot better than the office. And I'm, and I go into, into the office normally one day a week, and it's, you know, it's genuinely pleasant to think, oh. I'm going to the office today as opposed to, oh, no. Mm. It's amazing that things like that can be real draws for people as well and actually thinking, that's an environment that I want to work in kind of thing. Mm. I mean, I've only ever worked for the party very briefly as a Cambridgeshire organiser and, and like, the way oh, I was treated. Oh, we know the cause of that Cambridgeshire growth you were talking about earlier. Guys. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's all the volunteers and zero me, actually. And I, genuinely, I was only there for six weeks as a, a summer contract. But but that culture, actually, Becky Carr, who was the regional campaigns manager, just treated me so well. The volunteers treated me so well. And no one was particularly rude or anything like that. And it made me actually want to get up and do the job. And I think that's that thing, that culture we need to really embody with with our staffing structures as well. I think that it, it, it brings forward the idea that actually we're a volunteer-led organisation, but our volunteers would be hapless without the frankly phenomenal work our staff put in. Yeah, and it's what it, and lots of you know we, we sometimes talk about staff and volunteers as if they're two separate breeds, uh, but yeah, lots of staff either before becoming staff or after being staff or while being staff members do volunteer stuff as well, and vice versa. That people who are primarily volunteers, you know, often will. I mean, I guess you're probably a good example of that. Will have maybe a period of time working for the party, you know, mm -hmm. as well. That that actually there's quite a lot of overlap. And you know, if you look at the the party's current list of employees, there's quite a large number of councillors amongst them, which I think is really good for bringing a a better understanding of local government to our operation. But also means, you know, you've got a chunk of people who, when they clock off eventually at the end of the day from being a party staffer, are then a party volunteer, just like thousands of other Lib Dem councillor volunteers around the country. Mm. I think, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. It is a really, it's really important, actually, that we yeah, get that balance right and actually understand that those people are giving a lot for our party and don't have the release that a lot of us have with work or with family or whatever necessarily especially the younger staffers who sort of disproportionately are like just younger straight out of uni ones who often not married for example yeah it's it's we we i think are often as a membership slightly underappreciated of, of quite how much a lot of them put into the party for us yeah and you know, some of us are former party staffers who have hopefully gone on to still be able to do useful voluntary contributions to the party as well, as well since. And I, I, I mean, I remember actually one of the challenges being that if your sort of hobby becomes your profession, that in some ways is wonderful, but also can be quite challenging as well. And I remember, you know, on one hand, I remember thinking <coughs> when I started working for the party, 
brilliant. All of these committee meetings I no longer need to go to. <laughs> course that then and then rather filled up in the diary afterwards in other ways subsequently but yeah we I, I think maybe that's a good note to start to wrap up yeah. on that proper appreciation of both our staff and our volunteers because fundamentally although politics is about policies and ideologies in many ways the thing that provides the possibility of campaigning for them and even turning them into action that makes a real difference to people's lives are the people and it's, yeah, you need to have the volunteers, you need to have the staff, because otherwise the policies and the ideology end up just being something you talk about rather yeah. than something you can actually you can actually do. But just to, to wrap up then, I guess maybe we should both give a thought on what do we think is the most important thing for the party to get right over the next few months, sort of wrapping up what we've been discussing so far? I think we, first and foremost... And being sort of a returning officer myself, we need to ramp up our selections. We really need to get those candidates in place because this government looks like it's on its last legs. And I, I would hate for us to be in a snap election progress where every single PPC under the sun is dragged in in some way, shape or form to be a PPC for somewhere that they don't particularly know or care about because there's no one else to do it. I think we can find good, dedicated, liberal local champions in all of our, not just target seats and extension seats, but actually in our startup seats and development seats as well. I think that's the that that's the gold standard for the next sort of six to eight months. And fundraising as well, we need to make sure we are basically permanently ready to fight that general election with everything we've got and yeah. give the country an alternative, a really positive vision for actually Britain. I guess the thing I would add to that is the May elections next year, because there's such a big set of local elections, albeit... In England, there'll be, I guess, some council by-elections in Scotland and Wales on the same day, but it's predominantly an English contest. But the total numbers of seats up for election next May is huge. And last time round, those seats were up. We had an amazing set of gains to try and build on that next time. It's going to be challenging, but really important, both in its own right, because of the amount of political power that's at stake and that ability to change people's lives, but also because it's such an important opportunity to spread our organisational strength further by getting more councillors in. It, you know, the councillors themselves and what they're able to do, the resources that flow from if you have councillors, the motivation that flows for staff and volunteers if you've been winning election. There's a whole, whole set of potential benefits there. And I think it looks pretty unlikely we'll have a general election before those local elections. So they, it may also be that that, depending on how this parliament plays out, that that's our last chance to really broaden our recovery before we get into that increasingly narrowly focused on the target seats, the target seats and the target seats as you get closer and closer mm -hmm. to a general election polling day. So we need to make make full use of the opportunities that next May will provide us, whether that's places where we've not had a candidate on the ballot paper for years, getting a candidate for the first time through to seizing control of more councils and winning and, and winning indirectly elected mayor contests as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so winning elections, having candidates, lots of money. Just a nice, That's... easy to-do list there. Perfect. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank it's you so much for having me, Mark. If people wish to throw any barbs at your liberal reformist type views, where can people find you on Twitter, Callum? I'll Twitter that healthy Discord place at C Robertson underscore Libdem. Uh, sorry, underscore LD. So C Robertson underscore LD. And people can find me at Mark Pack or this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Mm -hmm.